Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on the podcast we call Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is Dr. Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I am very well. That's probably the straightest start to a segment we've ever done. I think we should start again. Yeah, there's something gone wrong. Where's all the fatter? Oh, dear. Maybe next time. But uh, yep. today we've, we've got some really fascinating stuff to get through, so we better get started. But uh, TRAPPIST-1, which has been looking at exoplanets, has uh, found some interesting ones. Perhaps rocky, perhaps wet. We don't know yet, but uh, that's something to talk about. And speaking of wet, the, uh, the moon Titan, which is wet in a very different way and probably not the place you want to go for a swim but we're going to look at some of the seas of titan and then we'll uh, catch a question from jordan in alabama i've got a bit of a story about jordan but i'll tell you that um when we, when we get to it and we might follow up on the uh, the launch of falcon heavy but trappist one fred what are what have they been looking at with trappist one so uh, really interesting stuff this is a uh, a planetary system discovered by a project called TRAPPIST. And TRAPPIST is an acronym, and I've just been looking in vain uh, to find out what it stands for. I do remember reading it out to you once before. Uh, it's a, a venture of the, if I remember rightly, the University of Liège in Belgium. Uh, got a very strong Belgian beer overtone to it because the TRAPPIST monasteries, where a lot of um, very good beer used to be brewed and probably still is. Uh, but the, 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 the point about the TRAPPIST-1 solar system is that uh, it is a, a dwarf star, a, actually an ultra-cool dwarf star, which has seven planets in orbit around it. Um, and they, they were discovered, and this is how the TRAPPIST project works, they were discovered by the dips in brightness of the star itself as each of these planets uh, passed in front of it, because we are kind of directly in line with the plane of the, the planet's orbits. Uh, so that's how we know there are seven planets going around them. What that tells you, Andrew, is the size of the planets in terms of their diameter, because the amount of dimming as a planet passes in front of a star is a, a directly proportional to the ratio of the diameters of the star and the planet. So um, if you know the diameter of the star, and we do pretty well know what these stars are, um, then you know the diameter of the planet. What is missing, though, from that information is the, the, the mass of the planet. But there are subtle ways of discovering that, too, because if you uh, think about it. You've got these planets which are in relatively close orbits to their parent star. They're, um, they're, they are gravitationally interacting with one another, exactly as the planets of the solar system do. But because they're so widely separated, the gravitational interactions are quite small. Uh, but it's true that Venus pulls on the Earth, Mars pulls on the Earth, the Earth pulls on Jupiter. All these things have got 
um, you know, well understood gravitational um, nudges, if you like, of these planets in their orbit. So we understand that for the solar system. We now think we understand it too for the TRAPPIST-1 system, uh, because by looking at the way the orbits of these planets behave, um, and you can tell that by the timing when, when they transit or pass in front of their parent star, uh, you can calculate what their gravitational interactions are, and that leads you to understand what their mass is, each of these planets, what its mass is. And of course, knowing the diameter and knowing the mass means you can work out the density. And the density is what gives you a clue as to what these planets are made of. So whether uh, or not they're a gas giant or a small rocky planet or something in between. Exactly so, that's right. So th these planets are all roughly Earth-sized. The biggest one's, I think, about 1.3 times the diameter of the Earth. The smallest one is a little bit smaller than the Earth. They're all roughly Earth-sized, uh, and they have masses that tell you that they are almost certainly uh, rocky planets. Um, and that possibly also, because you can tweak this, this technique to give you more information, it looks as though some of them uh, may have uh, water as well wow. on their, in their composition. So um, uh, one in particular, I think it is, uh, it, they've all got, you know, these, these planets are called TRAPPIST-1, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H. <laughs> Makes one sense. Of them, uh, yeah, that's right. You, you don't you don't include A because A is the star itself. So B is the first planet uh, out. Uh, C is the next one, etc. Um, and one of them, and I think it is, uh, I think it's Trappist G. I can't remember. Um, uh, one of them looks as though it might have uh, up to five percent of its mass being water. Now that uh, is compared with the amount of the Earth's mass, which is water. Can you guess what that is? I thought it was somewhere around 75%, but it might be more. 75% of the surface is covered with water, that's yeah, right. But in go. terms of the, you're quite correct, yeah. But in terms of the mass, uh, and remember you're talking about, you know, an entire planet there, the, the Earth's oceans uh, contribute about 0.02%. Um, and this oh uh, I see where you're going yeah so so it's much much more water 250 times more water uh, than there is in all of the earth's oceans so it might be a very wet world indeed sounds like it um, uh, uh, or you know it could be depending on the temperature and you can get an idea of the temperature knowing what we know about the star itself and its distance it might be a very steamy world um, indeed uh, so uh, you know it's uh, it's um, uh, a very very interesting world I think I suspect that the observations that have been made with um, basically various uh, telescopes including NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope uh, I think they are uh, the, the, the discoveries that we've made are probably as far as we can go at the moment. Although um, uh, there is the thought that the outermost ones, Trappist One, F, G, and H, um, are probably outside the Goldilocks zone. That means to say their water will be frozen, so they might have completely icy surfaces, mm. which actually is what we see in in our solar system with. You know, with some of the the satellites of Jupiter, Saturn, the um, Uranus and Neptune, they've got surfaces made of ice. So, uh, really, kind of interesting stuff. But the point I was going to make was that 
I think our knowledge of the TRAPPIST-1 system will take its next big leap forward when we get new instrumentation. Uh, the new generation of telescopes, the ELTs, the extremely large telescopes, which are kind of five to ten years away, but perhaps more especially um, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the next, uh, the next big thing in space. Um, it's the replacement for the Hubble telescope. That's got a 6.5-metre diameter mirror, the biggest mirror ever flown in space, uh, at least ever flown for uh, astronomical purposes. We don't know what else has gone on in space, but for astronomy, it's the biggest mirror ever flown. And that, we hope, will tell us much more about systems like the TRAPPIST-1 system. I think it's a very exciting time ahead. That's scheduled to launch next year, and I hope Space Nuts will be discussing it. Yes, I hope so too, and let's hope that the TRAPPIST system is uh, at the top of their to-do list, because if there is a planet there in the Goldilocks zone with that much water, uh, we probably, uh, yeah, probably would be a priority to confirm um, how much water there is, what the temperature is, and what the potential is for other things to exist in that uh, little solar system. Exactly. That's right. Who knows what might be there? And that's the great challenge of astronomy, finding out these things. Mm, indeed. All right. We watch with interest. You're listening to Space Nuts. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree, and governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and uh, with a go. Space Nuts. 
Now, Fred, we're going to uh, look at Saturn's moon Titan. Speaking of wet places, this is wet for a different reason, and I don't even know if wet would be the way to describe it. But there are seas on Titan, and they're very, very unusual. Not the place to go for a, a bit of a dip in summer. Indeed, that's right, unless you're a, an alien species that likes... Um, uh, temperatures in the region of minus 180 degrees Celsius, because that's the temperature at the surface of Titan. Remember Titan, the biggest moon of Saturn, uh, got a very thick and fairly opaque atmosphere of um, uh, mostly nitrogen, but laced with hydrocarbons, which is why it's got this smoggy uh, brownish amber look to it that can't be penetrated by visible light, but can be penetrated by radar. And that is why we know so much about the surface of Titan, because of the radar imagery carried out by the Cassini space mission when it spent its 13 years in orbit around Saturn and many, many uh, flyovers of the surface of Titan. So um, what we found out, of course, was that Titan, particularly in its northern hemisphere, is rich in lakes and seas. Uh, not lakes and seas of water, but of basically liquid natural gas. It's uh, seas of liquid methane, ethane, and nitrogen. Uh, they're the constituents of this stuff. Um, it's rather, you know, ra basically it's a kind of hydrocarbon sea. Um, very difficult to imagine uh, mm. what, it's com what its constituency is like, but we know that it sits on uh, a rocky bed uh, which is not made of rock. The, the rocky bed is made of solid ice, water ice. So the, the water is frozen solid. It becomes what we think of as rock here on Earth. And uh, the natural gases that are, are gaseous here on Earth, methane, ethane, and nitrogen, at our temperatures are, are all gas. But at the temperature of, of Titan, they're not. They're liquid. And they sit in these, um, in these depressions in the icy surface of Titan. Okay. So, so what, yeah, we've been over this ground before, but what you're saying is because of the temperature on the surface of the planet, water becomes rock and gases become liquid. That's exactly right. Yeah, there are still gases in the atmosphere, uh, but, um, but, but the, you know, the, the ones that we, we uh, think of as highly gaseous here on Earth, they, they're liquefied. It's actually a little bit more uh, interesting than that, though, uh, Andrew, just to pursue this a bit further, because um, the t at that temperature of minus 180, it's kind of interesting temperature, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly for these hydrocarbons, because methane and ethane evaporate when it gets a little bit warmer, and then they condense in the clouds in, in the atmosphere of Titan and produce clouds there, which we've seen by imagery from Cassini, and they produce rain, and it's the rain that makes rivers flow on uh, on uh, Titan. We've seen evidence of that with the topography beneath the spacecraft, and those rivers flow into the lakes and seas. So there's a whole, what we on Earth would call a water cycle, the evaporation and condensation. <clears throat> but on, on Titan... It's a, it's a petrochemical cycle. <laughs> That's right, absolutely. <clears throat> so um, that's the story so far. The new bit of this comes from some research carried out at Cornell University in the USA, uh, which is that some of the scientists there have done something pretty clever. Uh, what they've done is they've taken all the individual um, flyovers of the surface of 
uh, of Titan by Cassini, which resulted in these strips of radar measurements. Um, so we've, we've got lots of strips of where we've got information about the topography of Titan, including the, where the seas are and where the, the hills are and things like that. Um, but they're all at different angles. These strips are kind of, they crisscross the surface of Titan. They actually cover it pretty well, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, because that's where all the interest is with these seas being there. But they're individual radar strips. Uh, what's happened now is that scientists at Cornell have kind of stitched all these together in terms of the height above not above sea level, but above a datum, a standard datum. Mm -hmm. So they've essentially fixed the height of all the topography on Titan. They stitched them together because they all overlap, so you can you can kind of you know build a build up a map where the elevations are all referred to the same scale, if I can put it that way. The elevations being being the height of the features. It turns out that Titan has at least the parts that have been mapped have the uh, same kind of height range as we see in Australia, around about 2,300 metres. Um, but the surprising thing, um, and the thing that I think is really very intriguing in terms of the, the makeup of Titan, is that the, the seas and lakes are all at the same level. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're all at the same elevation. And that uh, because they're so smooth, the surfaces get brilliant radar um, data from them. They're very smooth. They, the, In fact, you don't see the radar reflection. It bounces off in a different direction, um, which is how we know that they are smooth surfaces. Um, it gives them um, a, 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 a resolution in terms of the height of somewhere in the region of 30 to 50 centimetres. So like a bit more than a foot, that's how accurately we know the height of these seas. And that's why this amazing result has come out, that mm. the seas are all at the same level. And what that suggests, well, when you look at these seas from above, you can see that some of them are in interconnected. There are channels, uh, you know, linking these, these seas, but not all of them. Some of them appear to be quite independent, but they're still at the same level, which suggests that there might be underground or under ice tunnels uh, connecting them, that they are somehow interconnected, maybe by r regions of the the, 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 the so-called rock, the ice uh, bed, uh, which are porous, or maybe there are channels within them that we can't see from above. But a very, very intriguing result indeed. Yeah. Is, is the reason that they're all on the same level known? I mean, is it a temperature thing or is it just the way the, the land lies? Is we, any we theories? <clears throat> the, the, the implication seems to be, you know, that maybe there's something equivalent to what we call groundwater here on Earth, um, mm. which is sort of what fills the artesian basin and things of that sort. Um, if you've got uh, a, 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 a groundwater um, system, then there might well be flows in that, which could give you this, uh, this situation where the, the exposed liquid, I mean, it's not groundwater, it's ground petrochemicals yes um, but um the exposed liquid all falls at the same height because they're they're interconnected below the surface and that seems to be the best you know the best um uh um thinking on that um that there's actually another little um quirky bit is that um and we don't really understand this either but uh, the the smaller lakes seem to be uh, always surrounded by pretty steep 
um, terrain, high hills around them with quite steep drop-off. Um, the scientists who's, uh, who's done this work um, is, is uh, Dr. Alex Hayes, who's a planetary scientist at Cornell. He's got this lovely quote. He says, it, they look like you took a cookie cutter to the surface and made little cutouts. Mm. Uh, and the, the lakes are in there. And he suggests that it's because these lakes have formed in uh, what used to be pits or maybe even caves uh, where something in the under underlying material has been dissolved out and it's caved in. I mean, it's, that's the sort of scenery you see in limestone in certain parts of the, the world. It's called cask scenery, um, where you've got a, a, the, the rock dissolves away, it forms a cave, and the roof collapses. Yeah. So you've got a pit with very steep sides. And that's the sort of interpretation of what we're, what we're seeing on Titan. It's great stuff. Um, sometimes these, these pits have got uh, rims up to 100 metres high. Uh, which is really, um, you know, quite remarkable. Uh, it seems to me like that the, the best explanation. Uh, I think um, it's uh, once again like all these things, Andrew. Uh, we need to go back again and see what's happening to get better maps and get better understanding of what's happening on Titan. But Titan's fascination never ceases to to amaze me. Um, there's still much to be learned from the Cassini data. I'm sure you and I will be talking about Titan for many years to come. Yeah, it's an incredible world, and uh, yeah, this is quite a revelation. And uh, you know, with the addition of uh, knowledge about the fact that it rains there uh, rain must fall on these things and they don't get deeper so it must be going somewhere it's it's very uh, yeah maybe it's spreading out beneath the surface it's it stands yep. to reason yeah yep. it's very yep. interesting all right we'll look more at titan down the track this is space nuts with uh, andrew dunkley and fred watson space nuts last but uh, by no means least fred we have an audience question and this comes from jordan holt in alabama now jordan and i actually started a little conversation last week uh, after he sent his question uh, because i asked him who was going to win the super bowl and we had a bit of a chat about that and um, I, I told him that i was actually on air at the time at, uh, on my radio station and he said, oh, you know, how can I listen? So he, he uh, found us on our stream, um, dcfm889.com.au, just in case you're wondering. And uh, he listened to us on his way home from work. Uh, he works between uh, Alabama and uh, I think he said Mississippi and um, put in a song request that uh, somebody brought into the studio, which he didn't tell me he'd done. And so I ended up playing him a song. I bet you can't guess what it was. Um, <laughs> Sweet Home Alabama. So um, I've sort of gotten to know Jordan pretty well. Uh, so thanks for the question, Jordan. Uh, he says, I've been listening to your podcast over here in the States, traveling from Alabama to Mississippi. There it is, uh, for work. Just wanted to say great job. Love information pods about our universe and space-related things. I haven't listened to them all, but I'd love to hear about the human civilization being able to travel to other planets or at least the potential for future travel. Uh, and I love the next line. Y'all doing a great job, mate. Accent's pretty cool as well. Jordan Holt. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, your, your accent, I'm sure, is brilliant too, um, even when you write it down. So this is something you and I have discussed in the past, the potential for uh, long-distance human travel. We're nowhere near that. It's certainly portrayed in science fiction films, I think most recently with Passengers, where they were doing a a 90-year trip in space in, in cryogenic pods or something like that. 
So where are we at and where does the future lie in terms of being able to travel to other worlds? Yeah, what a great question. And uh, hi, Jordan, from, from me too. Um, you know, my, my upbringing was a bit like yours in that regard. I was hooked on science fiction. I used to read a comic called The Eagle, which had uh, on its front page Dan Dare, the pilot of the future. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, it, it's classic stuff. Actually, the you know I think I learned a lot of my science from that because its uh, its author and artist Frank Hampson uh, did everything he could to get the science right. Um, the bit that uh, of course is always uh, done in science fiction is that the distances involved are compressed so that you can get from A to B either in the solar system or in the galaxy or indeed in the universe in a time span that doesn't last for <laughs> tens of millions of years uh, because that's the that's the nub of the issue mm. the reality of of the universe is uh, exactly as Douglas Adams said in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, space is big. Uh, and, um, you know, it is mind-bogglingly big uh, by our standards. So I, I think where we are at the moment, and we clearly live in a privileged time, Andrew, you know, compared with any other uh, era in the history of our species, we, we are seeing um, ourselves and in particular our robotic spacecraft uh, flitting around the solar system. The solar system is very much becoming our local neighborhood as far as exploration is concerned. But it is all robotic at the moment um, because robots are much easier to deal with than humans. They're a lot better equipped uh, to withstand the rigors of space. You don't need to feed them. You don't need to uh, allow them to breathe. And you don't need to protect them to the same degree anyway uh, from radiation. Mm. These are the these are the issues that face human space flight. Um, the, the so when when Jordan asks about you know civilization being able to travel to other planets, I guess what he's thinking of is is um, a mass movement of people between the planets, and I suspect eventually that will come. But um, I think we are at the moment at a time when it's premature even to think about that. Um, although there are people in the world who are thinking about it, and of course one of them has been in the headlines in the last few days. His name is Elon Musk. Yes. Um, his launch of the Falcon Heavy rocket was successful. Uh, launch into space of his Tesla Roadster, putting it in an orbit that will intersect the orbit of Mars and the orbit of Earth. It's uh, an elliptical orbit, and he'll probably keep winding around that for the next billion years or so. Um, look, that's all visionary stuff. Uh, um, and Falcon Heavy certainly represents a huge milestone in space travel because the idea of bringing back the boosters to the surface of Earth, which he did actually two out of three uh, of the boosters came back safely, the third one didn't. Um, the, the, um, the, 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 basically, the, uh, uh, you know, that step that has been taken is an enormous one in terms of bringing the cost down uh, to actually allow uh, commercial space flight uh, to, to, to exploit, you know, the, the possibilities that we can see that we can't yet grab yet because it's too expensive. It's, um, if I remember rightly, I don't know, my, my figure that comes to mind is something like $4,000 a kilogram to get things into orbit. It might be more than that. It's a huge amount. But what um, Falcon Heavy does is to show the way to bringing that cost down. Now, Falcon Heavy for Elon, however, is just a stepping stone to his next project, 
which is the BFR, the Big Falcon rocket. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Big Falcon rocket is what he proposes to take large numbers of people to the planet Mars in the end. Um, and he's talking about doing that within a matter of decades. Uh, it's not something I actually think we're ready for yet. I think um, there are all kinds of issues with it. Uh, one is that if you start talking about this sort of thing too early, then you raise false expectations in people. The, the, the technical challenges are still enormous to get people to Mars. Even, you know, two or three NASA astronauts, getting them to Mars is still a huge channel, let alone, uh, challenge, sorry, let alone sending uh, thousands of people to Mars. So I think it's premature. It also raises the question of what if there's indigenous life there already? We might find living microbes or uh, evidence of past life on Mars. We don't know. And, and um, I actually think as well, the bigger challenge for us is to fix up our own planet so we're not trashing it the way we are at the moment. And I have to say, Elon is contributing to that as well because he's, you know, pioneered the, the electric vehicle in a way that glamorizes it uh, and makes it very appealing to people. It's mm. great stuff. Oh, yeah. So I mean, the, that Tesla Roadster's out there now and it's floating around. And is it in anything or did it, is it floating free? No, I think it's actually in, uh, mounted on the on the pod on on the final stage of the right. the rocket. Just, just returning then to Jordan's question, uh, look, I think in the long term uh, we are going to be a, a truly spacefaring species. We probably won't go much further than the confines of the solar system unless physics sees a, a new breakthrough in in allowing us to to uh, cover these enormous distances. Yeah, like in, folding, in a folding space or something as yes, extreme as that. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're light years away from that at the moment. Mm. Uh, but I think, uh, but I do think it's part of our destiny. Assuming we don't get wiped out by an asteroid or a supernova or a, or a runaway virus or, or each other, other. Or each other, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's possible that all those things could contribute to our demise. That's actually one of the motivations Elon has for trying to get us off the Earth because, um, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a single point failure here. Uh, if something bad happens to the Earth, then that's the end of it. Yes, indeed. So we're going to have to, um, well, you know, let's assume for a moment we do last long enough to, um, to, to survive to the point where Earth is uninhabitable. We will have to migrate. We will have to find somewhere else to live so these things need to need to be looked at and you know what better time than now to start considering it you don't want to leave it till the last minute exactly that's mm. right the last minute is the wrong time to be to be escaping from a doomed earth <laughs> yes very much so yeah all right fred thank you as always thank you to jordan for the question and keep your questions coming we love to hear from you so um definitely uh fire them through to us via facebook or twitter or whatever way you want to send them to us and and we'll do our best to answer them uh, sometimes they get through to the keeper, which is a cricketing term, which most of you probably don't understand, but uh, it means we forget. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, we'll, we'll do our best. And if we do miss one, remind us, send it to us again. We'd be um, happy to follow it up. Fred, as always, thank you so much. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk. And we I look forward to the next time. Uh, and and uh, forgive the peanut gallery from my radio station who just wandered in and started yabbering in the background. But... Uh, these Never things mind. happen sometimes. <laughs> but um, until next time, thank you for listening and enjoying Space Nuts. 
We'll catch you again soon. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Tights.com.